opinions, and attitudes. Attitudes. There's actually uh, intriguing talk. You know, they talk about the news. And you have to respect them for that. You're listening to Right On Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to Ride On Radio. My name is Jeff. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Jesse is still on vacation, so I am flying solo, but I have an incredible guest and probably one of the most important whistleblowers that we've ever had on this show. And I don't mean important as, a, you know, one person is more important than the other one, but this particular whistleblower has the ability to bring down the entire government. And she's poised to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is no joke what you're about to hear. Uh, her claims are incredible. Her experience is incredible. She has operated at the highest levels of government. Uh, she had a very high clearance, as I understand. I have done background checks uh, through other contacts, including the military analyst, who I want to personally thank for helping to make this introduction. and. Uh, and, you know, he backs up everything that this guest says, and you know that he does a lot of research. Yesterday, I had the privilege to spend about an hour with her on the phone, and the depth of knowledge, you just can't make it up, ladies and gentlemen. What you're going to hear is a real story, and listen, we can do multiple, multiple interviews with this particular guest and we will not get halfway uh, through her story. Uh, she is an author of a trilogy of books and she has a new one coming out and the name of the book coming out scheduled for a May release, it is available for pre-order as I understand right now, is Tell the Truth Until They Don't Like What You Have to Say. Memoir of an Oath-Taking Survivor. And of course, I am talking about the author, none other than Michelle Stefanik. Michelle, welcome to Write On Radio. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you and your audience for this opportunity. Well, it, the opportunity is for us because we're all trying to reach for the truth. We're all looking for the answers. And we all know how bad the corruption is, and how much this beast system needs to fall. But some of the things that you told me yesterday, Michelle, that we'll be getting into uh, were shocking. And in fact, the probably one of the most shocking things was the amount of money. Like, it's, it's just beyond measure, ladies and gentlemen. And we're going to get there. Uh, but just before we get into some of the real deep intel. Michelle, you are a real person. And I want to convey to the audience who you were, what you were doing with it, you know, as you went into the government before you found the corruption. And just describe what life was like for you, what you were doing, and then we'll get into what you started to see. my upcoming book, which has been too, purposely delayed for some reason up to two years, Tell the Truth Until They Don't Like What You Have to Say, a memoir of a Department of State oath-taking survivor. 
the synopsis of that, just so that people get uh, the, you know, the high level uh, synopsis of what's going on. Though I did not ask for any of this, I found myself as a little cog in the deep state machine with the spokes of the nefarious players, the U.S. Department of State, Central Intelligence Agency, Department of Justice, Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the military all connecting to me. My story is the story of various elements of our government are working to subvert the Constitution and the American people. It's not a political story. It's a very personal story. It's a very real story. And it's my story. Now, in the course of the delay of publishing my first book, I actually then started a second, my second book. The second book is uh, currently in draft and is called The One Long Continuum, The War in the Dark. Failure after failure after failure. So many individuals responsible, but yet no one held accountable. The synopsis of this one is, in my first book, Tell the Truth Until They Don't Like What You Have to Say, I provide details of my own personal story. In this book, I provide additional context and linkages of how I was not only a rhetorical pawn on a chessboard, but an actual centerpiece of a multidimensional chess game with linkages to events from decades prior to my even being born and expanding across the United States government and beyond. Again, I didn't ask for any of this, yet somehow I survived. I survived. Why? In order for, my, for me to share my story. Now that I have, the question is and remains, will anyone be held accountable? Will justice finally be done? And most importantly, will changes be made so that what happened to me in my storyline to the world never happens again? With so many lessons, where will there finally be lessons learned? And then my third one, which I'm also now um, still in the process of completing, is called The Truth, No Matter What. Refusing to lay down this weapon in defeating the false evidence appearing real. In my first book, Tell the Truth Until They Don't Like What You Have to Say, I provide details of my personal story. In my second book, The One Long Continuum, The War in the Dark, I provide some additional context and linkages of how I was not only a rhetorical pawn on a chessboard, but an actual centerpiece of a multidimensional chess game with linkages to events from decades prior to my even being born and expanding across the United States government and beyond. And this, my third book, more and more Americans were asking questions in addition to my own. And in this book reflects what happens when the truth is not defeated. So with that, David, I mean, with, sorry about that, with that, Jeff, why is my situation my story important because this is all about one long continuum and i want to begin with this the truth matters and for this u.s constitutional oath taker american people so do you you do you also matter Amen. i'm not a researcher but a first-hand victim and witness that had federal 
Crime Victim Rights Act, CBRA protected status, and regardless, I was massively retaliated against. My point being, if I wasn't protected, and look what happened to me, do you think you're going to be protected? And most importantly, I didn't ask for any of this, but here I am. I took an oath to defend the U.S. Constitution, not a person, not a president, not a party, and against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and across three equal branches of government. But the deep state, the corruption in all three, of which I have direct linkages, firsthand experience, and standing in a court of law to include a military tribunal against and regarding all three. Because, Jeff, no one is above the law, and it was, is, a federal offense to threaten, intimidate, harass, or mislead a witness, in this case, me, in a criminal or civil proceeding. So the Department of Justice and the FBI and the Department of Defense, what's the status of the federal UCMJ applicable charges that to be pressed and were pressed on behalf on my behalf against everyone and anyone and all involved? I should have just preempted this conversation by saying that uh, Michelle has to join me via telephone. Uh, it's for security reasons, obviously. We have to jump through a few hoops to even get her on the phone. And right before starting this broadcast, something that has never happened before, my computer was hit and it was hit big. Like if I hovered over any icon, a hundred windows were opening up. I had to reboot several times. So, you know, there's parts of this message that, you know, uh, listen, maybe it's a good sign, maybe it's a bad sign, but we prayed uh, together and all the equipment is working. Uh, but Michelle, just go back, uh, and, and you said something really interesting that I want to explore, uh, that it was prepared before you were born, and that's very interesting to me. But I just want to set up, you were working in embassies, you were uh, you know, a diplomat of sorts, uh, before you started realizing the corruption, the injustices, uh, what they were doing with the budgets, can you tell me what you were doing with the U.S. government? Sure. I, um, when I first graduated from college, I uh, moved to Washington, D.C. area, and um, I applied to different federal agencies, but of course they have this long process, which I was naive and didn't realize, but um, the Department of Defense's Defense Contract Audit Agency had direct hire authority. And since I was, um, you know, I had an accounting background, I went to work um, in February 1987 to November 1988 with the Department of Defense's Defense Contract Audit Agency. And I worked there for over almost close to two years. And then, um, then I transferred over to the U.S. Department of State in the Office of Inspector General. It was during the time when the Office of Inspector General was uh, had just been strategic, uh, congressionally mandated to be um, statutorily independent. What that means is before, prior, the Foreign Service inspected the Foreign Service. And so the IG had inspectors, but they were actually rotated Foreign Service officers. 
So there was no independence. So then Congress mandated that the State Department IG be congressionally um, uh, statutorily independent. The first statutorily independent um, IG was named Sherman Funk. I went to work with this new um, organization of the State Department OIG, and I worked there from 1988 till officially about September, um, no, July 1998. So I was with the Office of Inspector General, and I did numerous inspection or audits all around the world. And then what happened in um, 1993 to 1995, I was loaned out to the Foreign Service from the State Department's Office of Inspector General and did my first excursion tour as a regional financial management officer at our U.S. Embassy in Yaoundé, Cameroon, that's in West Africa, from September 1993 to 1995. I was regionally supporting not only the embassy in Walter Reed, 
So instead of going to Santiago, Chile, I asked for a break in assignment so that I could assist him with his recovery. Um, and then I was assigned to Embassy Moscow. Well, just just one moment, um, Michelle, because, you know, I don't want to breeze over this. The bomb went off in your office, in your embassy. Yes, at Embassy Nairobi. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, uh, I, I guess there's probably the official explanation. It was terrorist. What do you think happened there, and why do you think it was bombed? Uh, well, okay. Um, let, let's just say, okay, I physically was in Ethiopia that day because I'm, I'm an Orthodox Christian, and so I went up to Ethiopia to do the Ethiopian Orthodox historical route. That's where I physically was the day of the bombings. I flew back the next day to for continuity of operations and to help recover the operation. Um, I was not allowed back into the embassy, but I went to the, the, the embassy after the bombing after site aftermath. Um, and my departure date was scheduled August 20th, 1998. And they, um, I was told to leave. I was told to continue with my plans, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I must say, there's a lot of detail I can plug in. But at the point in time, Jeff, I, I, I drank the Kool-Aid. There was no reason for me not to believe our government at that point in time. Okay, so so that's that's good then, uh, because obviously the revelations are going to come out a little bit later. But I just didn't want the audience to miss the fact because I think that's a very key part of your story that the bombing in Nairobi, you were there. Well, you you happened to be away by the grace of God that day, but you lost your staff members and all this stuff happened. And by the way, this is in the Clinton years. Uh, which I think I know our audience is drawing to some conclusions already here, uh, but wait for the facts to come out because uh, Michelle has lots of them. But so we'll, we'll go to where you were going to, I just, I didn't want to take you off of track, but so then you, you kind of drank the Kool-Aid, you went along with the playbook and you went Moscow. service so I was no longer loaned from the IG's office I was officially foreign service so that was Moscow was in essence my very first foreign service assignment and to your point and I do need to put that in and state that as a goalpost the August 7 1998 East African Embassy bombings happened under the tenure of President Clinton that's a fact that's not a political statement that's a fact um, and when I was, before I went to Moscow, I went through a year of Russian language training. And in um, March, April 2000 timeframe, I was still at FSI, Foreign Service Institute, learning Russian when the uh, Department of Justice, Southern District of New York, um, AUSA, Assistant U.S. Attorney um, Ken Karras, came down to speak to me at FSI to ask me my opinion on capital punishment. Um, the reason why is because that is how far along they were in preparation for the trial of the East Africa embassy bombings, which was going to be, which was and was carried out and tried in New York. 
Um, so they came down to talk to me and ask me, in my opinion, the capital punishment, um, and also some insights as a victim and witness. And Jeff, you have to understand, there are some things I still, at this point in time, do not feel that I privy to, to, to disclose. But I'm trying to disclose as much information as I can. To, to Only share. what you feel comfortable with, Michelle. I want to be right. very clear about that. I'm not ever going to push you for sensationalist details, but when you mention something, if it seems very pertinent, I just want to ensure that the audience heard that. And, uh, you know, uh, there's always going to be some more, and, uh, you know, we have to be concerned for your life, and there's certain things. And also, we want to be concerned for justice. I think that's really relevant to the conversation as well. And if you leak out certain things, then, you know, the other side can prepare defenses and do all kinds of things. So there's obvious reasons why some detail will not be released. Correct. And so during my discussion with Ken Cross, um, some of the, it, the conversation details I will share now, but some I cannot. And I just, I hold that as a marker. So when, during my conversation with Ken, he basically said to me, what's your opinion on capital punishment? And I, you know, I said, Listen, my personal opinion, I'm against capital punishment just because our justice system is so, you know what I mean? How many times we hear about patsies? I, I just, so uh, that's my personal opinion. I can, we can go into that later, whatever. So I told Ken, I said, I personally do not believe in capital punishment. That being said, I lost my work family. I did not lose my blood family. So therefore, my opinion should not be crucial to this discussion because you need to go to the victim's families. But And I said, but by the way, how are you going to do that? How are you going to say, and again, at this point in time, I said, how are you going to say Bin Laden killed their own when you don't include their own that he killed? And he basically said, Michelle, uh, you know, I'm, I'm close paraphrasing after all these years. He said, give, you piqued my interest. Give, give me more insight on that. I said, many of my staff were Muslim. So Bin Laden, if Bin Laden did this, he killed his own. But you did not even include, and Jeff, you have to understand, they did not include the Kenyan and Tanzanian, particularly my staff, the counts pertinent to their killings and their death in any indictment charges to date at that point in time brought by the U.S. government. Why do you I think they would that? exclude your staff? That's very strange. Those are Americans. We had Kenyans and Tanzanians oh, okay. on our, in our staff. But the point is, they, they were U.S. government employees that died for a flag that wasn't even their own. And considering this is Madeleine Albright and this is Susan Rice, okay? So, that was about March, April 2000. On May 8th, 2000, and I can send this to you. I received, there was a press release, a joint press release from the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York, Mary Jo White, and the FBI Director in Charge of the Field Office in New York, uh, Barry Mon. And they put out a press release, and the press release is pretty extensive, but one of the concepts in the press release was that 
the indictment charges were changed to increase to include those of the our nationals, our foreign service nationals, our Kenyans and Tanzanians, many of my staff, they're, you know, the murder charges applicable to their lives as well. So it wasn't until my conversation with Ken Karras, who came down to see me at FSI, and he even said, he goes, Michelle, do you realize we are this far along? With that, so we're talking about what we're going to go as a sentencing if we win our case. That you are the first and the only ones that have brought this issue to our attention. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there was, I was like, so at that point in time, you know, something was always off. Because, you know, I'm an auditor, right? And you follow your instincts. I was a professional auditor, so you follow your instincts. I'm like, you know, I've never been through a terrorist attack before. I've never been through something like this before. So I'll just learn the process. Maybe I just don't understand what's going on. But in the, I've always thought something was off. And believe me, the details on my book, it was definitely off. So I was in, I was in Moscow. I was assigned to Moscow. I arrived there 2000 to 2002. They flew, the Department of Justice and the State Department flew me back to attend the embassy bombing trial being tried by the uh, Southern District of New York to New York City in June of 2001. Okay. We all stayed. The Department of Justice put us up at the World Trade Center Marriott. <laughs> I, you know, when, as soon as you said you, you put emphasis on the date in 2001, and of course that's right ahead of September, uh, you know, my mind was going there. Please continue. Okay, so now, we already know now what event I'm already alluding to, right? But what we're going to talk about is fast forward Okay, May 1, 2011, the bin Laden, the supposed bin Laden capture and kill of a man that supposedly died, what, December 15, 2001, and the Fox News even reported it, the May 1, 2011, supposed bin Laden capture and kill by the supposed U.S. Navy SEALs right? Uh -huh. I was assigned to Stuttgart, Germany at that time with the U.S. military, with Marine Forces Europe and Africa at that time. On May 30th, 2011, I received an email from the accountable uh, regional security officer for the accountability review board for Embassy Nairobi, a May 30th, 2011 email with a, uh, a media uh, attachment and her, from Patricia Hartnett Kelly. She was the diplomatic security agent, though she had departed post Nairobi months before. She was the accountable um, RSO. She sends me an email, and in that email, and you have to understand, Pat and I had extensive conversations throughout the years, but for the first time in that email, May 30th, 2011, 
We find out that Embassy Nairobi was a major CIA hub. Ah. Our embassy bombing was an inside job. As it always seems to be. <laughs> In the, the aftermath of September, September 11, 2012, of the diplomatic post-Benghazi attack, and let me tell you something right there. We don't have diplomatic posts, okay? We have embassies and consulates, okay? I connected the dots, and not only did I have my aha moment, Jeff, I had my aha, my aha moment, if you know what I mean. Please tell me about that was, moment. And I was massively retaliated against under the tenure of President Obama. Again, I can't change those facts, nor can I change this fact that both occurred, the embassy bombing and the retaliatory actions taken against me were both under the tenure of Democratic administrations. By the time I filed my U.S. Supreme Court case filing, case number 16-223, and any of your audience can go to the Supreme Court.gov um, uh, website right now, as we speak, pull up my last name, Stefanik, S-T-E-F-A-N-I-C-K, and you will see my Supreme Court case filings. And that was 16-223. Yes. So I filed my first Supreme, pro se, because of everything that, I, that was being done to me, on August 16, 2016. And Jeff, that was before the, president, the Trump and Clinton presidential election, okay? Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, I was aware of two data points. Now, you may or may not be aware, but remember when Secretary of Defense's Donald Rumsfeld's statement of September 10, 2001? regarding the $2.3 trillion that went missing that was that was missing unaccounted for that's right okay and the next day the army accounting section was uh taken out that that was in the pentagon that got hit by the missile right the second data point that i had was susan lundauer's statement on her show on uh, what, uh, Frequency Radio, she made a statement on December 27, 2014, which I was listening to, regarding the over $14.6 trillion of black CIA operational money. So that, sorry, that was 14, over 14 trillion. 14.6 trillion. Ladies and gentlemen, what's the GDP of the United States? And here and then here we have black budgets of this proportion. Man, the American people are getting screwed. Oh yeah, you're the US taxpayer paying for this. So, once I heard that statement, because of knowing what this was all about. I specifically
only included the 14, over $14.6 trillion figure, not the $2.3 trillion figure in my U.S. Supreme Court case filings. However, now, since coming out with my story, I became aware of some, a caller or a listener contacted me and asked me if I was aware of the Leo Wanta um, missing funds, or funds, and I was not aware. So in 2003, the Commonwealth of Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia, they're in the Pentagon, they're in the Commonwealth, same mm -hmm. county, yep. a federal judge ruled uh, on regarding Leo Wanta. Now, I know the amount, be, now I know what this was all about for sure. It was when I was with the State Department's Office of Inspector General, me and my audit team discovered funds to be diverted. But it was outside the scope of our audit, and it was precisely in 1991, predating all these other dates, you see, when, when we discovered the diversion of the funds, <coughs> we came back to, to State Department IG and asked them, because it was out of the scope of our audit, whether we should go back and continue, um, include that under the scope of our audit, or whether we should do it as an, um, a breakaway audit. Um, and we were advised no. So yeah, just stay away. No, exactly. And now to find out, and no doubt, the CIA block operational funds were indeed, that we discovered to be diverted, were indeed being diverted to CIA, CIA headquarters Switzerland, as Chris Wilson has revealed what's going on in Switzerland, was between now the amount is between 27.5 and 42.1 trillion dollars of black CIA operational money. That, and, and, you know, just maybe, maybe you're a new listener. I, I'm just going to give you my opinion and perhaps Michelle will agree or disagree. The CIA does not work for the American people, ladies and gentlemen. All and it never did. they're the army of the Illuminati, and that's all they are. You know, and the FBI does the cleanup for the CIA. Ladies and gentlemen, time to wake up. We got to flush these uh, three-letter agencies down the toilet. Let me tell you. Now, funny. Now that's a good segue to my next statement. So I had my filing in the U.S. Supreme Court, right, and. The response to my August 16, 2016 filing, which I did all this pro se, because I knew what this was about. So I did it pro se so that the whole world would see that it's documented. Because I knew the sabotage that was going on, I knew the entities that were involved, but I also knew the truth. President Obama's Department of Justice Solicitor General responded to my August 16, 2016 filing with a waiver response 
on September 7, 2016. Now, Jeff, do you know what a waiver response was? That, that was my question. I want to have some clarity for myself and for the audience. Well, okay. I'm not, I, like I said, I'm not a lawyer, but I still, where to God, after everything I've been through, I should be, be <laughs> yeah. a lawyer because of everything that I've done. My understanding in layman's terms is this. The waiver response. Okay, so the department. So the the Supreme Court receives my uh, petition, right? My writ, my writ of uh, certiorari, and they basically say, okay, Department of Justice, uh, respond to this. And their response was the waiver response, basically saying, back to the Supreme Court. Uh, Unless you make us Supreme Court, we're not going to give a response. So the the in layman's terms, it's it's actually accurately depicted by the wording. It's a waiver goodbye response. Not going to oh, deal yeah. with it. Well, no, no accountability here. Right. It's, it's more like a you know kind of like a middle finger salute, but yeah. Well, wow. okay. and, and, and that, listen, that happens all the time. We see Congress uh, subpoenaing, and you're right, when the, the Democrats are in in particular, there's zero accountability. They won't even respond. It's like, yeah, screw you, you know. And so I love the fact that you keep referring to yourself as an oath-keeping American because these people have all sworn an oath, and they all break their oath every single day. These people are Nazis. And by the way, not just the left, the right as well. There's one party, right. ladies and, and gentlemen. That's the next point I was going to make, and, and this is my point, and this remains my point. I'm not looking at all of this through a political lens, because what is happening is beyond just simply politics. And again, there is no statute of limitation on murder, nor on treason. Because that is what we were and we are dealing with. And murder and treason isn't limited to one political party. And That's it's right. in that context, I have been and continue um, to present my discussion remarks today or any time that I'm on such a forum as yours. So then uh, what I did was I filed my second petition for rehearing to the Supreme Court. And that filing was November 3rd, 2016. And that's all documented. Now, are you familiar with Christopher Fulton and his book, The Inheritance? I am not. Okay, his book is called The Inheritance, Poison Fruit of JFK Assassination, published in 2018. I only became aware of Christopher Fulton's book in 2019 when I was in the process of drafting my own manuscript. And as soon as I heard some of his detail, I immediately got the book and I ordered it from him so that he could, he signed it personally. I outreached, I read it cover to cover the, the weekend that I got it, outreached directly to him because why? Because of two points, because of the interaction between our two applicable timeline of events, August 7, 1998, being the embassy bombings, that weekend being the long wedding weekend for Christian Amapur and Jamie Rubin in Italy 
and the applicable and quite obviously obvious messaging Washington Post article documenting this wedding and its, it's, its attendees included John F. Kennedy Jr. and then Christopher Fulton's August 9th, 1998 arrest. So many things we can we can go down rabbit holes on that. But the second point that really uh, I took away from Christopher's book is President Eisenhower's supposed top secret agreement with and regarding the CIA, basically giving them authority to operate above the law. Yes. Now that said, given that neither Christopher nor I were even born at the time of President Kennedy's assassination on November 22nd, 1963, but yet both of us were targeted, retaliated against how many years later is proof that this is not a conspiracy, but a very active and very real to this day as it was in 1963 and the legal definition of conspiracy, particularly given my own connection throughout the years to JFK via Ted Sorensen and Ted Kennedy. Now, you had mentioned the marriage of Christiane Arnapur, and she's the foreign uh, journalist for CNN. Uh, So what was the importance of that wedding? Perhaps I missed the point. Well, you have to read this. Uh, First of all, guess who else attended that wedding that weekend? Uh, Well, you... Madeline Albright. So her embassy bombing was an inside job. These are the players, and they were all standing by in Italy to watch it happen. And then the bombing happened. Uh, okay, I see what you're saying. Now, um, are you familiar with this this newspaper article? Okay, so it's dated. Um, okay, it's dated August 10th, 1998. It's a Washington Post article, and I can, and um, it's called The Ultimate Joint Statement by William Drozdiak, D R O Z D I K. And as you know, I'm on with David Zublick's show, and I have spent almost the last nine months dissecting and particularly uh, pulling, unpacking um, the deep rabbit hole of that Washington Post article within itself alone. It's unbelievable, the connection. So what, what, what is the basis of the article? What's the headline? It, so, and that's that's the modus operandi. They blow up and, and destroy all the evidence. The embassy. Yeah, and you're the you're the auditor, so they don't want anything to get out. And they thought I was. They did not know because. Okay, first of all, for things like this to happen, there has to be pre-planning. 
My trip to Ethiopia was unscheduled and simultaneous and just spontaneous. Well, and thank God for that. <laughs> thank God for that. The one day. No, that's okay. I'm just saying, thank God for that. The one day that it happens, you know, it will. And, and you left actually to, for, uh, well, I don't want I hate the word religious, but for faith reasons, you left and wanted right. to take a little bit of a holiday. And that's the day it happens. It just, you know, well, first of all, I don't believe in coincidences, as you know. Oh, you wait till you hear all the different coincidences that actually saved me that were going on. And I, you know, depict all that. But the point is this, um, because of a, a delayed flight that I did not go, um, I was supposed, on August 6th, I was supposed to go to Diradawa, which is the old Muslim city in Ethiopia. And it was a part of my tour, it was an add-on to my tour, just so that I could go see it. But it's such that there was not much to see. So literally, I would fly down mid-afternoon and turn around and fly back at 6 a.m. the next morning. And I was in Ethiopia, I was in Addis, sitting at the airport, waiting and waiting and waiting for my flight, which is commonplace anyways, especially for my regional travel throughout Africa. Whether the plane comes or not, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's just the way it was. And my plane was delayed. And then it was delayed. And then it was delayed to the point that it was so delayed that it was giving my window of opportunity to actually tour what I was going down to see was, was um, diminishing. So I'm like, I'm not going. So I... The next day, I was supposed to back, come back and fly back on the 7th and stay with some of my colleagues that were now assigned to Embassy um, Addis that had been with me in, in, in Nairobi. I was supposed to stay with them on the 7th. But due to this delay of plane, I ended up staying, um, called them on the 6th and said, hey, listen, is it possible I freeload with you guys an extra day? Um, I'm cutting my tour short because the plane is delayed, but I couldn't reach them. So instead, I outreached to um, the TDY defense attache that I knew and said, hey, listen, can I stay with you um, and then link up with my friends, uh, you know, from uh, Embassy Nairobi the next night as we'd already scheduled. And the person that I called said, sure, the only thing is I he had an event with um, uh, some officials that Friday night. So he said this could only be Thursday night, not Friday, because of the event that he had scheduled. I said, just one night until I can link up with Robin and, and Lewis again. So I ended up staying. I, le I left. He came to pick me up. I stayed at his house the next morning, August 7th. I was sitting at the veranda writing notes from my trip when all of a sudden he came in to get me to take me into the embassy and said, he, you know, at that point in time, our embassy's communications, we were still using walkie-talkies. And there was all kinds of gibberish on the walkie-talkie. And because I had been there months prior because of the, uh, the schism between um, Ethiopian Addis just months prior, I thought the gibberish was that Ethiopian Eritrea had gone to war again. So he comes out and he says, Michelle, 
um, Embassy Nairobi has been bombed. And I said to him, I'm like, Michael, that's horrible. What a horrible thing to say. I thought he was joking. <laughs> and he said to me, he goes, Michelle, Embassy Nairobi has just been bombed. I need you to come back to the embassy with me now immediately so you can give us a briefing as to what was located where at the at the site. What was hit, right? So I was brought back to the embassy in Addis. I was at the lunch, the snack bar getting something for lunch. And all of a sudden, the CNN, talking about Christiane Amapur, CNN's initial reporting, Jeff, had the bombing occurred in the front. And then it changed its story and said the embassy bombing was in the back. And so at the time, I was thinking, oh, my God, thank God it's in the front. The reason why I said that is because my office, Jeff, was in the front and my, my section was a bullpen. So my thought was if it hit my office, I wasn't there because of the cement wall, it would have buffered um, or slowed down the impact on the bullpen of my section. Right. But then as I was having lunch, the reporting changed to say, no, the actual bombing was in the back. And when I saw where the bombing was, I knew instantly my section took the brunt of the bombing. So. And so, and what, what was it that was the information, particularly in the section of your office, if, if, if indeed your section was targeted, what was it exactly that they were trying to My dismiss? My section was the financial section. So it's the black ops money trail. And both of my cashiers are Citibank cashier as well as my local cashier. Both of the cashier operations were destroyed as well. Yeah, and this is what happened in Oklahoma. This is what happens at the Pentagon. This is like, it's a repeating pattern, folks. Can you see it? And in between my two cashier operations, we had all the records. Um, because when I got there, I mean, I can't even go into detail. It was such a financial mess. It wasn't even funny. And then what happened because of the, the work I had to do, I literally, our records, our financial records, it was such a mess throughout the whole entire office, but particularly the prior year records were stored at a warehouse, a GSO warehouse that were being destroyed. So literally, the first thing, one of the first things I did was not only cleaned up, literally physically, literally the books and records, but also physically, because it was a mess, all the filing system and brought all the records that were being stored off-site back internally into the space in between my two cashiers. All those records were also destroyed. And now our processing is not done locally, but it is done through the USDO at another offsite location. But the source documents, all the source documents were destroyed. But so does that mean there was a backup in a different country or how, how does that work? 
our U.S. dispersing offices. At the point in time, we had one in Mexico City, one in Paris, and one in Bangkok. Our processing centers are at an, another level up, but the source documents to support a transaction is held locally. Those were all destroyed, just like World Trade Center 7, which had all the source documents for the Department of Justice's litigation against Enron WorldCom, which were both CIA fronts, which the Arthur Anderson auditor thing collapses. That's what happened in Arthur Anderson with WorldCom Enron, all the original files to litigate against Enron WorldCom by the Department of Justice were stored in World Trade Center 7 and were destroyed. Not to mention it was one of the greatest gold heists of all time, if not the greatest gold heist. All the source documents of black, obviously black operational transactions were destroyed on August 7, 1998. The distraction was Dar es Salaam. All the source documents at the U.S. Army War, uh, the Army War Section that were about to be investigated were destroyed on September 11, 2001. So, Mi it's Michelle, all about the black CIA operational money, of which Rumsfeld himself openly acknowledged only $2.3 trillion of on September 11, September 10, 2001. And that, that, was, that was less than 20%. I'm sorry? And, and his number was less than 20%. Exactly. But if you don't know the bigger number, you think that it's possible that it could be locally done okay if you hear 2.3 trillion okay that's still a large sum of money yeah but when you're talking about a weaponry system and you know department of defense or a beltway bandit you know that, that those numbers add up and you so you can see it right but if, if they knew if they openly acknowledge no the amount is 42.1 trillion dollars of which 27.5 trillion was openly acknowledged in a Commonwealth of Virginia federal judge court ruling in 2003. If you say 42.1 trillion dollars, who is the only entity capable of that kind of movement? The U.S. government. That's right. So, Michelle, the mom and pop shops, not some, you know real estate transaction, not some, you, you see what I'm saying? It, everybody would have instantly known, but they had to keep it in the dark, in the shadows. They had to lie nefariously to the American people. And you tell me nobody in Congress knew? Oh, Absolutely they knew. Of course they All do. Yeah, well, except for maybe five or six, I think. I think there might be five or six good people that snuck in there, but that's about it. And out of 535, that's a very small percentage. But, Michelle, so we're hearing a repeating pattern of, you know, them kind of someone getting close, doing audits, doing, you know, 
people doing some of their jobs in the deep state and then it all being shut down, all being destroyed, happens time after time. There's never any accountability. But you mentioned something yesterday, and, and while we're kind of talking about the uh, the World Trade Centers and the Building 7 and things like that, I, I think it's really good to tie in with the with some of your time in Russia, because you had told me about uh, you helping an astronaut. And by the way, you've met uh, Vladimir Putin as well. I met him once, yes, for uh, actually Ambassador Collins, the ambassador to Moscow at the time. Once he found out that he had an, an American Orthodox Christian in his, um, you know, amongst his mission and his staff, um, he took me to every and any event that dealt with the Orthodox Church. Um, as because uh, Ambassador Collins had served years previously as a political officer in Moscow, and he knew to understand um, politics, you had to understand the church. Um, and so therefore, once he knew that I was there, he took me to all the functions and one of the Orthodox Church, uh, Russian Orthodox Church functions that he took me to, um, President Putin was there. And so I, where I was going with this is uh, in your time in Russia, and what I want to do is I want to give the audience a little bit of hope that justice is coming, and it might even be coming sooner than uh, what people think because of what's happening in Ukraine and what uh, what you think uh, Putin is about to do. But your story ties directly into this, Michelle, and I want to get that part out because you had a particular duty as an astronaut uh when you were in stationed in Moscow or in Russia, would you tell us that story and what you think is going to happen? Sure, absolutely. But but in order to understand the context of that, um, again, I bring up about JFK, and I know you have not listened to all my uh, discussions with David Zublick, but I prove it, and my conjecture is and remains. Um, you know, everybody asked why Jackie kept on the, the, the pink Chanel suit with the blood. I will tell you, my conjecture is it was to do a DNA test on the blood I and to maintain custody so that nobody else took the blood away from her so she had it. And due to the casket incident that I um, recently discovered and found out about, I am adamant, my conjecture is, that JFK himself was never assassinated. His body double was, as um, RFK was also aware, he too was not assassinated, his body double was. And um, I, though I, I mentioned it in passing to you yesterday as well, um, I will be in my remarks that I, because, you know, our interview today was, was uh, I'm scheduled to talk to David Zubik's show later today. So, and I'm just starting my storyline with you today, but I'll let you know right now that I'm going to be breaking on David Zubik's show about Marilyn Monroe actually not being assassinated or murdered. She was also a buddy double. And that then brings it to Sirhan Sirhan being used as a pawn and his recent custody being parole being denied that it's all interlinked and it's one long continuum now regarding the one um the statement that you're talking about as you know uh i was in moscow at the time of 9 11 but of course i had no idea 9 11 was going to happen um and what happened was one weekend 
or it's not weekend. What happens is when you have a size of an embassy like us, um, so that some people don't get the same old calls over and over and over again, they establish a duty officer um, uh, mission or you know uh, role. So and it rotates across every single American uh, Foreign Service. Um, officer assigned to the embassy, and it was my term, and I was scheduled. It goes, I think, from Wednesday to Tuesday. You know what I mean? You rotate, and from Wednesday um, over the weekend, and then you turn over your duty officer book to whatever. So it was the course that I was a duty officer. I, um, without going into all the details, I was called um, regarding um, an, uh, an American official that was has come to Russia um, without a visa and was urgently needed to pass through um, and I uh, worked the matter through such with the, the Russian officials at the airport to get this individual through um, during the course of the information, I was getting more and more information. I found out that it was actually a female NASA astronaut that was um, called in to replace somebody that was sick, or I forget the storyline, you know, why, but she was suddenly summoned, told that she had to, to come immediately to take the place of somebody else or whatever, and she did not have time to get a visa. We got her through. Um, so she was actually a part of the Mirror Space Station. I actually was acknowledged for what I did by our Embassy Moscow NASA office with two satellite images, one of Moscow itself from a satellite image from NASA above, to show the uh, you know uh, river the Moscow River, the second one was from an actual uh, uh, mission NASA mission, which then now just recently it has come out that Putin is going to release the satellite images from 9/11 from the Mir space station to document that the explosions happened first at the Pentagon before the World Trade Center was hit. And my point is to this is that I have firsthand knowledge and firsthand witness to have been the one that got the a female American astronaut on the Mir International Space Station at that time and who would have witnessed exactly what Putin is saying he has so an american witness with satellite imagery and timestamps. boy that could be very big and and michelle i'm not going to press you for anything but you just mentioned and i i guess i'm just curious and, and by the way this will play after you're on live with uh with david zublick so you are breaking news on his i don't want to cut him uh off uh obviously but why would they use body doubles and keep these people alive, like Marilyn Monroe, for instance? Well, that's a part of what I'm going to be exposing today. Okay, so because this is playing after you expose it, um, what did you expose? <laughs> well, the sheer fact that our U.S. Army Special Forces 
ones that, um, and the Army Special Force, I believe, my conjecture is, the U.S. Army Special Forces, who Kennedy established, working with some very loyal, some very sincere and good Marines, because believe me, there's good and bad in both entities, as you can attest to the whole Michael Aquino information that you guys have been revealing. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, but there's, you know, that Kennedy was protected. He was actually uh, brought to um, Aristotle Onassis's island. That's where he was. That's why Aristotle Onassis immediately, with his security guards and bodyguards, immediately flew to Washington upon hearing about the JFK assassination to protect Jackie and the children. And there, yes, there is conjecture also that JFK Jr. is actually Aristotle Onassis's son, especially when you compare Onassis's son to photos of JFK Jr. And potentially that of uh, Caroline Kennedy um, being uh, Onassis's son as well. Um, therefore, they saved and protected the president. They thought that it, they did not realize at the time how deep this was, just as President Trump is now realizing how deep this really is and how expansive this really is as well. So the same scenario of JFK is being parodied now with the Trump um, presidency, if that makes sense. In, in your opinion, will Trump overcome it and come back, or are we doomed? Now, he was surrounded by snakes, so they say. Uh, you know, it might be possible that he couldn't get around to it, or, you know, people kept shifting priorities. Look, I don't know, and, I, and I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just offering, you know, some potential scenarios. But right. and, you know, and, and, and to, to your point, Jeff, you are absolutely correct. And the only person that can speak on their own behalf is President Donald Trump himself under oath in either a, you know, a civilian criminal trial or a military tribunal. And depending on what the special forces get him um, you know, out of him in terms of who exactly he was working with, who exactly were the dark hand spin masters controlling him, um, you know, to put and finally put an end to all this, only Donald Trump could can speak on his own behalf. He's an adult. He's over 18. But he has to be open and honest and expose everybody and anybody. And as you know, in my discussion yesterday, um, I also shared some of the individuals that are not necessarily good guys. Right. So, you know, it is a battle of good and evil, and I believe it's, you know, a lot of it's happening in the heavenlies, but obviously a lot of it is happening on Earth here, and it really is a battle that's happening right now, and it, so I've just maintained, and this is my own opinion, speculation for what it's worth, Michelle, that uh, 2022 
is the year that will determine whether the tribulation starts right away or not. Yes, and as I told you last night, I believe because of my book, oh, let me give you a little bit of insight on my book even, okay? So once I started drafting my book, I actually went to the U.S. Army War College in the 2008-2009 resident class. So as I was drafting my book, and uh, I sent it to former uh, Army Special Forces, former Navy SEALs, Interesting, Rob O'Neill, the one that supposedly did the target, the, the the kill shot, never got back to me. Okay. Yeah, well, he what didn't do he didn't do that kill shot. That's just a media puppet. Right, and so as I was writing my book, I sent it because I did it a couple reasons. A, so that they could confirm and um, verify all the information I was right I was revealing as I was writing. They knew to get the story out. Thirdly, to watch who was targeting me. And after a year, I finally got it done. It ended up being over 700 pages. And um, I immediately registered it with the Library of Congress Registration Office. So my initial draft was over 700 pages and it was registered. The next day is when I went under contract with my publisher. And as, you know, as Basics 101, as soon as you sign up your rights over to a publisher, you know, they control it. So the first thing my publisher said for me to do is, um, you cannot publish a 700-page book. You have to cut it in half. But thank God I have it registered with the, the, the full length in the Library of Congress, and that's already officially registered. So now this, this other version is about 400 pages. And it's been purposely, intentionally denied publication for almost two years. And you say that's significant, uh, and it was purposeful, but significant, and you think a lot is going to happen before the actual date of the release. And what is that date in May of the release, and what do you believe will happen before that? According to the Amazon posting of my pre-release book, it was listed as a publication date, May 13, 2022. My publisher provided that to Amazon and has not provided that to me. I found out based on this Amazon posting. So, Jeff, my conjecture is this. May 13, 2022 is the proposed publication date, release date of my book. And if it does not get released, and with your audience, you guys are all now first row witnesses to this accordingly. If it does not get published, it is now being watched and monitored who stops the book from being published now that an actual release date has been identified. And if it's not published, they will be caught. Well, I have a suggestion, and I think it's a very good one. Ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I think the amount of evidence that Michelle presents, the dates, and she was an auditor, so she's got the deets. You know, she, she is a record keeper, 
And what I would suggest to the audience is if the book is available for pre-sale right now, and it's called Tell the Truth Until You Don't Like Until They Don't Like What You Have to Say, Memoir of an Oath-Taking Survivor by Michelle Stefanik. Pre-order this. If we get tons of people to pre-order this book, that makes it very, very hard for them to delay it again. Why would they? There's money on the table. It makes it very hard for it to disappear. And just you can tell that Michelle is very articulate. You can tell that, that you know that the book being in writing is going to be full of details, articulate. I'm sure there's a lot of bombs in there. And, you know, you'll get her story in further detail. I would love to have uh, Michelle back. I hope she'll agree to it. Uh, but pre-order this book. That is one of the ways, look, we have to stick up for whistleblowers. Uh, her life has been turned upside down. Look, I, I can't even, she can't even have a cell phone. Okay. We have to do routing, all kinds of stuff to get her on the air. Uh, literally, we can't get a Zoom thing to open up because I wanted to record it on Zoom and just, you know, maybe black out the face or do, you know, we couldn't even do that. And then this morning, my computer's going wacky. Never happens. There's stuff that is in that book that is going to be very, very critical. So let's all pre-order this thing and make it difficult for them to take it off or move that date back again. And I suspect that if the White Hats are in control, as they say, that the White Hats really have a kind of a date of May 13th that they need to accomplish some stuff by. I'm just making that assessment from what I'm hearing. I don't know anything. I'm never a guy to give out dates, but it kind of sounds like these two things are, are coinciding. At least that's what I'm gathering from my guest, Michelle Stefanik. Michelle, what a, I want to thank you for, you know, giving your testimony, uh, at least giving us parts of the story. Uh, I'd love to have you back on. You have such a wealth of information and, and, and obviously, you know, you've begun to put all the pieces together and not even, even outside of your story because they all interconnect. It's all the same players doing this stuff and you have just so much more to offer our audience. So, uh, do you mind if I raise two more points real quick? No, please do. Congresswoman 
uh, Jennifer Wexton, just as a sample, they all knew. Senator Snow, Senator Chuck Hagel, Senator Joe Biden, Senator Barack Obama. Do you get my point? Yeah. Secondly, on September 30, 2013, Due to the retaliatory actions taken against me when I submitted my November 27, 2012, eight-page whistleblower protection request letter, I submitted my letter of resignation to Secretary of State John Kerry. On October 16, 2013, I was notified Secretary Kerry accepted my resignation, effective October 1, 2013, as I requested. Within weeks, despite my being removed from the U.S. Department of State's payroll, I was subjected to yet another round of retaliatory actions with an emergency motion in the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Commonwealth of Virginia, considering this is a federal national security matter and a federal employment matter, how in the world did the Commonwealth of Virginia get into this? I received an emergency motion making me go to uh, you know the Arlington um, general uh, the general uh, court but also the district the circuit court basically telling me that I have been reinstated against my will back onto the State Department payroll so that on December 17 2013 they have deemed me incapacitated and obviously incapacitated for life and Jeff this was all done because I resigned or because I survived August 7 1998 which one do you think it is well hold hold on I I just want to they reinstated you after accepting your resignation. They reinstated you against your will and then deemed you incapacitated. Right. Yeah. My goodness. Oh, yeah. The, you know what? Who's one of the most crooked out there, obviously. As is Susan Rice. Oh, yeah. Wait till I get... Have you ever heard about the, the Osama Files Vanity Fair article of Susan Rice? I, I do remember that. I yeah. do remember hearing of that. We can go into all that next time. Yeah. Well, listen, any anyone attached to Obama, and we've called out who Obama is on this program. Uh, you know, this isn't just Obama. No, it's oh no. Also George Bush and Dick Cheney. Well, they're all in the same club. Exactly. Listen, they're all Satanists, and Dick Cheney was the modern day Darth Vader, honestly. Right. And, you know, my conjecture is because of everything that's going on, is um, this war in the dark is actually a battle between the Kennedys and the Bushes. In essence, a proxy war between the Brits and the Germans, of which our embassy bombing was a proxy on American soil, because as you are aware, 
Kenya and Tanzania are the Queen's British Commonwealth countries. Yeah, but when you say it's a war against uh, Britain and Germany, uh, I would just add my two cents. Where is Germany? I'd say it's North America. <laughs> yeah. Well, are you? I mean, are you familiar with the um, the Nazi swastika uh, shaped building, the barracks that was built in the 1960s, congressionally funded and built in the 1960s on U.S. naval base Coronado in San Diego, California? You know what? I'm familiar with the base, but I did not know about the building. No. Oh, yeah. And the building was after it was finally uh, renovated only in 2007, coincidentally and curiously, under President Bush. And I'm sure um, Chris Wilson has uh, shared with your audience about George H.W. Bush and his father, uh, Prescott Bush really being the German Nazi infiltrators, the Sherps. Yeah. Well, Chris hasn't shared that, but that has come out on our program uh, before. Maggie Thatcher, Maggie Thatcher was really Joseph Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, and Robert F. Kennedy's uh, lobotomized daughter that was left behind when he left his posting as U.S. ambassador to the U.K. that grew up to be Maggie Thatcher. <laughs> this world has been nothing but a lie. But you know what? When uh, when you talk about the uh, the Nazi, you know, uh, building, listen, I'll, I'll just bring it up to yesterday. The entire U.S. Congress stood up in unity and applauded Zelensky while wearing a Nazi cross on his shirt, begging for World War III. Ladies and gentlemen, that's where we're at today. Well, you know, I, I have made remarks for David's show, but I can share this with you now, if you don't mind. Please do. So, so yesterday... On, you know, Wednesday, March 16, 2022, at 9.30, uh, 9.30.02 a.m., I received an email from Politico.com. And by the way, Politico was well aware of my my case and my situation and did nothing as well. But here we go. This is, this is the article. Subject, breaking news. Zelensky recalls Pearl Harbor... 9-11 and plea for U.S. aid. According to the email breaking news, Ukrainian President Zelensky on Wednesday invoked historically potent attacks on the U.S. at Pearl Harbor and on September 11, 2001, pleading with Congress, our Congress, U.S. Congress, for additional military aid as his nation fights to repeal a, a Russian invasion. Quote, ladies and gentlemen, friends, Americans, in your great history, you have pages that allow you to understand Ukrainians now, Zelensky told U.S. lawmakers. 
Quote, remember Pearl Harbor, the terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Remember September 11, a terrible day in 2001, when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories, into battlefield. Quote, our country experiences the same every day right now at this moment, every night for three weeks now, end quote. Zelensky spoke remotely via a video feed and told U.S. lawmakers that he was addressing them from Kiev, the Ukrainian city, capital city that has for weeks been the target of Russian military strikes. Members of the House and Senate gathered together to hear Zelensky, who personally requested the opportunity to address them in the Capitol Visitor Center's Congressional Auditorium, end quote. Wait a minute. So members of our U.S. House and our U.S. Senate gathered together to hear Zelensky, Zelensky, who personally requested the opportunity to address them, but yet... Congressionally mandated the 9-11 Commission itself with the applicable 9-11 Commission hearings themselves, which I have been going over with David Zuvlik and just completed our deep dive of the applicable Wikipedia page for 9-11 Commission and the 9-11 Commission.gov website itself, particularly and specifically this quote, National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, end quote, 9-11 Commission's 12 hearings due to its significance, pertinence, applicability, and particularly since its review and emphasis was on what? The August 7, 1998 embassy bombings through the September 11, 2001 attacks. Yet, the same corrupt, treasonous U.S. Congress that did not protect me, an American citizen, a federal auditor, a federal official, and a Department of Justice, Southern District, New York, Federal Crime Victims Rights Act, a law they themselves passed and enacted, a crime victim, a CVRA protected victim and witness in regards to the August 7, but instead, had a pivotal role in the targeted retaliatory actions taken against me. And a non-U.S. citizen, a Ukrainian President Zelensky, <laughs> personally requests to address them in our U.S. corrupt Congress, and he gets to do it? Then a non-U.S. citizen, Zelensky, recalls Pearl Harbor, a 9-11 and plea for U.S. aid, our U.S. taxpayer-funded USAID? So wait a minute. Since the U.S. congressionally mandated 9-11 Commission's review, an emphasis was on what? The August 7, 1998 East African Embassy bombings through the September 11, 2001 attacks. Then why didn't non-U.S. citizen Ukrainian President Zelensky specifically reference and mention and include August 7, 1998, U.S. East Africa Embassy bombings in his plea as well? So you see, who was really behind and put Ukrainian President Zelensky into power? Seems we have our answer, don't we? And seems Absolutely we do. have proven 
once again, haven't we? Again, interesting, isn't it? Particularly given my own continuing deep dive of the 9-11 Commission hearings themselves. I love how you tie that in together because it, yeah, you're exactly right. It's all the same players, and they put him up as a stooge. By the way, he's got a $40 million mansion in Miami, you know, uh, and, and they want to send... Oh, and isn't that where our Special Operations Command is located? That's right. And, and isn't they... Yeah, well, being a former JAG puts him in the company of Lindsey Graham, which is not good company, let me tell you. Um, Lindsey Graham, South Carolina, U.S. JAG, U.S. Air Force JAG. These people have committed knowingly and willingly and purposely and intentionally treason. That would be my opinion as well. And, you know, <laughs> listen, just the fact that send the Ukrainians whatever they need, but uh, don't do anything on your southern border because we're being, you know, the United States is being invaded right now. But no, 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 don't look there. Everybody look at Ukraine. And, you know. You know who else is on Burisma's uh, board? John Kerry's son, that's for sure. Yeah. Kofa Black, the chief of station in Sudan, and the one that was behind the false narrative about bin Laden, as well as being the U.S. State Department director of counterterrorism at the time that he testified on, at the, on the 9-11 commission hearings. He, too, is on the executive board of Burisma. And guess who he's connected to? U.S. Navy SEAL Eric Prince. Oh, and by the way, Office of Naval Intelligence Steve Bannon. So yeah, President Trump needs to do some revealing to a joint unified Special Operations Command uh, through General Berger, the, the current Commandant of the Marine Corps, because they are not messing around and they will not hesitate to take out their own because their own have been involved including our u.s military in this treason because jeff how else could we the united states of america be in the quagmire that we are in today because they are the ones that got us here and they are the ones that got to stop it and get us out. Well, it's it's all by design that we're in this place. And uh, listen, we just hope there's enough good people fighting behind the scenes to uh, make a difference. You know, uh, that's that's certainly our hope. And, and I hope that you see justice as well for all that you have been through. Because what a nightmare your life has really turned into being. And that's... One of the reasons why I do suggest, listen, it, 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 this is one way the whistleblowers get supported. But, you know, I also really think that the pre-sale idea is great. Let's blow this up. Get a lot of those books pre-ordered and uh, 
let's make it impossible for them to take it away. And uh, if you want to send your senators the book and stuff like that and then hold them personally accountable, that's also a really good idea. Michelle, I really want to thank you for being on Right On Radio. And uh, I would love to have you back on. You've dropped so many bombs in just the last 15 minutes that my audience, and by the way, thank you. They're going to probably listen to this more than once now. <laughs> to uh, to catch up on that, we have a lot of diggers in our audience, and uh, and pretty much everything you're you're you know saying, they're going to be digging into and looking for answers and clarity themselves. They will be looking up your uh, superior uh, court case of sixteen two two three. They're going to be looking up everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Michelle, thank you so much for being on right on radio. Uh, do you have a closing remark? Once we get enough, maybe then I can come on and answer some of the questions that they've generated to you. Okay, so the comments really, well, I guess you can comment on, they can comment on Rumble uh, as well. But so this will go up on uh, on FluffTube for probably only about two hours, but it'll be up on every other platform permanently. So uh, Very good. we'll have to see how it goes. But Listen, I want to thank my guest, uh, Michelle Stefanik, uh, for being on Right On Radio today. I hope you enjoyed the program. Uh, Listen, you know what? With all the strange stuff happening in the world, you know, instead of giving all your money to the big guys, to the people who've profited throughout the whole last two years and stuff like that, the Walmarts, the Amazons, look, check out mylibertystand.com. Sign up. One of your fellow listeners will walk you through it. Uh, what happens is, you know, when we say we're competing against Walmart and Amazon and things like that, it's because instead of those stores getting paid, the little guys get paid. And who are little guys? Well, it's it's Jeff, it's Jesse, and it's the, the team of Right On Radio listeners that we have working with us. And uh, and perhaps you even want to work with us as well. Uh, go to MyLibertyStand.com and check it out. But after you do that, remember... Love your God, love your family, love your neighbor as yourself, and make a difference in your community. Right on, right on, right on. Right on radio. Right on radio.